Welcome, you're listening to All Things Naval Aviation with your host, Rear Admiral John Meyer, Commander, Naval Air Force Atlantic. Welcome to today's edition of All Things Naval Aviation. I'm Rear Admiral John Meyer, Commander, Naval Air Force Atlantic, and I have the distinct pleasure today of sitting down with Captain Michael France, who's the Commodore of the Airborne Command and Control and Logistics Wing based out in Point Magoo. Welcome, Fancy. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here today. Hey, today is a, uh, a pretty fortuitous time to be having this conversation. Not only did we just celebrate the 245th birthday of our Navy, uh, we are actually on the cusp of the 60th anniversary of the first flight, the maiden flight of the E-2, which this Wednesday will be uh, 60 years ago that the first E-2 flew out of Bethpage, New York. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about the community, the mission, and the path that you're on right now? Yes, sir. Uh, again, thanks for having me, uh, and uh, happy to discuss all things E-2. Uh, as you said, sir, 21 October 1960 was the first uh, flight uh, of the E-2. Uh, back then, it was known as the W-2F, or the Woolly Fudd, uh, and it was, uh, and that first flight uh, was flown by a guy named uh, Tom Atridge, uh, and, that, and sir, that name may sound familiar to, to some. That's the that's the same gentleman who flew uh, the F-11, uh, and uh, as a test program, and he's the guy that shot himself down by going supersonic and flying faster than his uh, than his bullets, uh, and uh, and he ended up ditching in the field because of that. So that's the same gentleman that flew the first flight of the E-2 uh, back in 20, 21 October, nineteen. Uh, 19- uh, 60. So after he shot himself down, I guess they put him in an aircraft that didn't have guns just to be a little on the safe side, it sounds like. I think they moved him over to something that was a, uh, he proved himself, uh, got that test point, they don't want to do that again, so they moved him over to another platform, absolutely. Well, well as a former test pilot yourself, this has got to be, I think, just a, a fascinating time for the E-2 community, for the whole community. The, the advent of the E-2D is absolutely a game changer and I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, the role that the E-2 takes on and the role that is evolving uh, to include, uh, as we've discussed previously, your, your community is busy with a lot of transitions and a whole lot of improvements, which as a test pilot yourself uh, has got to be just fascinating uh, to be you know, involved at as the Commodore. Yes, sir. So we are, we are involved intimately in three significant transitions right now. We are E2C to E2D, currently about 50%, a little over 50% of transitioning squadrons from the C to the D, uh, as well as uh, moving from E2D uh, to E2D AR, or aerial refueling. Uh, That is is why we built uh, the E2D, was to get airborne and and stay on station, and and now we've transitioned our first squadron, VW-126, in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, to the AR version. Uh, the mission systems in the back are the third transition we're going through right now, going from disk two to disk three. So if you think about if you think about the E2D as it stands today, from where we were, uh, an, an E2D with aerial refueling and the disk three mod uh, is really why you know we built this aircraft. So if you think long range detection and you think uh, persistence on station with aerial refueling, uh, this aircraft is 
It's been around for 60 years, uh, and, you, and some of the guys in the, in the program say it's going to be around until 2050. So this, think about possibly 90 years of flying this airplane. Uh, and, uh, but that's why we built this airplane, uh, and uh, it has proven itself uh, from in major combat operations from the Vietnam War to Libya, the Gulf War, uh, and it's going to be around uh, for, the, uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, well, the advances of the aircraft in the E-2 community and going to the E-2D uh, AR, uh, ab absolutely like you said. But what, it, what you're really talking about is the true strength of carrier aviation, and that is the evolution of the air wing. I tell the audience this a lot, but years ago, I watched the Enterprise pull into Newport News shipyard as she was being towed back to be inactivated, and it was a, a pretty poignant point. Uh, in my career. But it's important to note that that ship, uh, 50 years after she was commissioned, her air wing and capability was every bit as relevant as the day that she was commissioned. So we continue to evolve the capabilities of our air wing. And it is the air wing of the super carrier or the Nimitz and Ford class carrier that brings these uh, intangibles, if you will, to the fight. So uh, we talk about the evolution of the air wing and what makes a, a carrier air wing uh, so relevant is the fact that it brings its own airborne early warning. It brings its own uh, airborne electronic tack, and it brings its own organic refueling capability, not to mention the whole host of long-range detection and command and control. Yes, sir. So when you talk about air refueling and being on station, we're really moving in the direction of, of you know, having a tracker that can track at range, but we can do things in the in multi-domain fashion. We can bring multiple sensors into the aircraft, and we can distribute information to the people that need it, uh, making so that they can make real-time uh, decisions about what they're seeing. Uh, uh, also, you know, we're not just improving the mission systems, but as a you know, as a test pilot, I'm heavily involved in championing championing programs like. Uh, a PLM type of system that we can put in our airplane that will help our pilots who have been out there doing that mission for eight, nine, ten hours after doing that air refueling task as well, coming back to the ship at night, bad weather, pitching deck, and getting some augmentation in the airplane that will help them you know, bring this aboard, uh, bring this aircraft aboard safely. Well, I think that's an exciting point. There's a couple items that I want to touch on. Uh, just like you said, near and dear to your heart, is incorporation of PLM. So for those in the audience that aren't aware, PLM stands for Precision Landing Mode, and it's a system that is a derivative of a system that's on the F-35, but it is now being implemented on our F-18 line, E's, F's, and G's. And it is, think of it as a uh, passive aid to pilots to greatly enhance their ability to land on board the ship. Uh, the, pro the system has demonstrated just an uh, incredible margin of safety and performance in landing on the ship. And as one of my former CAGs described, the goal of PLM is to really make landing on board the ship an admin function such uh, that the heart rate is a lot lower, the anxiety is much lower uh, in that evolution, and that it's a very, very safe, almost benign evolution with the assistance of PLM. You hit the nail on the head, though, uh, and that's kind of the double-edged sword of refueling E-2s in flight and now taking what is a four- to five-hour mission uh, and going eight, nine, ten, essentially getting our, our electronic eyes airborne 
throughout the night, while perhaps the rest of the air wing is sleeping or resting, we've still got that forward presence of AEW. We can't get that to the fleet fast enough. I think your test background and uh, drive to help push that uh, will be a, a big determinant in how quickly we can get that to the fleet. Yes, sir. I'm going to continue to champion this program, and we're already working some uh, uh, some upgrades in the simulator and Mandified simulator uh, out of Pax River uh, to try and do an AOA capture task, to try to do a glide slope capture task, just to make it as simple as possible. You know, going going down the road of of changing out all the uh, uh, the actuators in the airplane to to do exactly what the F-18 and F-35 do may prove too expensive, but we certainly can figure out something to help these guys get the aircraft aboard. Yeah, so when you talk about simulator, I've got to tell you in the audience how impressed I am uh, with the E-2D simulation for airborne refueling. I've been flying for 30-plus years myself in the Navy, and in aviation we have a great culture of using simulators they've only improved. Uh, in my earliest days up in Whiting Field, I'll date myself, uh, we had simulators that were really nothing more than pictures of switches in the cockpit. And interestingly enough, uh, folks kind of fought for time to just sit in those and get familiar with the layout of the switches. I've done airborne refueling in other, tank, in other simulators and it's paled in compare. But I, a couple months ago, I had the opportunity to get in your simulator here at the FRS squadron at VAW 120. And uh, I will tell you, it was as lifelike as anything I've seen. The sight picture out the window, uh, the challenges of engaging the basket, but all the way to engaging. And I'll tell you, you even get a little bit of a pucker factor in that simulator. But it's that simulator linkage of how we advance our training capability, whether it's airborne refueling or for all the systems in the back end. The Navy's uh, really pressing down what's known as LVC, or Live Virtual Constructive Training. And imagine uh, a very near future where we have pilots in simulators in Fallon, Nevada, in an F-35, and we have pilots in a simulator here in Norfolk, and then we have some aircraft flying, and they're all fusing that information, and it's transparent to the aircraft in the air, whether those folks are in simulators or in real aircraft. That's the future of our training. Yes, sir, I completely agree. Uh, it's, not just as, it's not good enough just to, for us to link up our pilots and sims and the, uh, and the NFO sims and, uh, and do it internally for training, but we really need to reach out to our, to our air wing squadrons and train together uh, so that we can train to the high-end fight. 100% agree and completely concur with your assessment of the sim. I, I recently got to fly... Uh, six plugs behind the KC-10, uh, and then two days uh, later, I jumped into the sim to compare, uh, and I and it was really hard to tell the difference. The flying qualities were very, very close to the same. So, uh, my hats off to the simulator folks who who modeled the aircraft and modeled the tanking evolution, because uh, because it was very, very realistic uh, in the sim, and that and that matters. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that that's also. Uh, a high-risk area of flight. So the ability to do that in the simulator uh, before you do that in the aircraft also speaks to really the drive that we're trying to push in naval aviation where you conduct the simulator for the right to fly, if you will, or you do a mirror image event in the simulator uh, and then you go and fly the event in the actual aircraft. Uh, we've proven that is uh, remarkably uh, 
improved safety performance, but also remarkably improved tactical performance as we've recently changed our Airwing Fallon training model that now includes an extra week of simulation time and the results for that are uh, absolutely eye-watering. You touched on another point that I really want to uh, talk about and wonder if you can explain. A previous uh, All Things Naval Aviation, uh, I had met uh, Danahy here from uh, NWDC and we talked about distributed maritime operations and fundamental to that is the ability to take distributed sensors and networks and take that data, whether that's from space, other aircraft, subsurface, surface, you name it, but to take all that information and fuse that into something that can be operated uh, and, and used by uh, tactical forces. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because it's that data distribution, I think, that is really the true strength of the E2D. Yes, sir, absolutely. Taking, the, taking this information in, we, have, we certainly have challenges uh, in terms of how to get this technology in the aircraft, but this is, you know, along with some augmentation in the airplane, this is our, this is our current challenge to, to, to get uh, these multiple sensors at multiple classification levels uh, into the aircraft so people can make a decision, the NFOs can make a decision and get this information out where it needs to go. So when you talk about JADC2 uh, and multiple, multiple domains, multiple sensors, we are, the technology is, is growing very, very quickly. Uh, and we are trying to uh, figure out the best way to, as something else goes obsolete, puts, you know, the technology changes very rapidly. We're pushing towards uh, getting these uh, in these further disk builds, uh, not necessarily in disk three, but disk four, five, and six. Uh, we, are, you know, we are working very closely with our Grumman partners uh, our Lockheed Martin partners uh, and their subs to, to really take this information, distribute it, and get it to the decision maker who needs it. Because the guy who, the guy who has the decision might be that junior guy in an F-35 downrange. He might need that SA or he might even have that SA. And we can really transform kill chains uh, into, into these kill webs that, uh, that will that will allow us to win in a wide open space like in the South China Sea. Yeah, that's exactly where I see the future of warfare going is the, the fusion of sensors. And imagine a unmanned aerial vehicle operating a couple hundred miles from a surface unit, passively detecting a system, relaying that information then to that surface unit, which then plugs that into this network and shares it amongst perhaps marine uh, shore-based shore batteries, other surface ships, aviation units, fleet headquarters, all of those such that the best decisions with that information can be made. And those decisions may be to monitor uh, that target. Uh, it may be to uh, gather more information, or it may be to hold that target at risk. And that is uh, absolutely where uh, E2D plays such a vital role. You mentioned JADC2 earlier, and that's uh, an interesting topic because that's an Air Force-led initiative, Joint All-Domain Command and Control, uh, and everything that we're doing in the Navy is intended and designed such uh, that it will be both independent, uh, which is the great strength of our carrier strike groups, our maneuver warfare, our lethality at range. We talked about the endurance of whether it's the E2 or others uh, as a result of our refueling, but it is that maneuver, lethality, uh, 
combination, if you will, of the aircraft carrier, but also that independence of the aircraft carrier, and then plugging completely into JADC2 such that everything that the carrier is uh, absorbing, learning, and uh, uh, vacuuming up can then be plugged into the, uh, the, the whole command and control network. Yes, sir. Navy ops are we're, we're certainly independent, as you as you say. We certainly have our own sensors that you know we certainly need to distribute into the into you know, these future webs that we're talking about. But we also are receivers uh, of information uh, and receiving and distributing uh, information to the people that need it in a timely fashion uh, is uh, certainly where we view uh, the E2D and the air and the carrier strike group. That's where we view uh, where we need to go. And we work with our program office uh, every day to accomplish uh, those missions and those tasks. Yeah, so Fancy, you just took over ACC Logwing a, a little while ago, but it's important, I think, to share with the audience, you have an amazingly Im impressive resume. Uh, over 4,700 flight hours, which is uh, almost 1,000 more than, than I have. Uh, 25 different aircraft, which is... Incredible. I think the only category in aviation related that I uh, might lead you in is traps, and that's only because uh, E-2s with those long missions don't get quite as many traps as those of us in the tactical air uh, aircraft. Uh, I'm interested, though, in uh, since you just arrived and uh, you discussed capabilities, you discussed transition uh, for the community, uh, I'd like you to share with us your vision for ACC Logwing and, and where you uh, see that going in the future. Yes, sir. Thank you. So the uh, as as the as we build upon uh, the the great foundation that we that we have for the last sixty years, uh, you know, phasing out the C, moving into the D, uh, we really need to. I think we really need to focus on this this augmentation to help the pilots uh, move into uh, a more safer uh, environment to operate uh, the aircraft. Um, and the, the AR platform, uh, we certainly we have a we now as a back when I was uh, a lieutenant, uh, we didn't have something called a tactical fourth operator up in the front right seat. And uh, if the vision for the wing is to really take with all these sensors that we talked about in the past, the guy in the right seat, the pilot in the right seat, really becomes uh, you know, with three guys in the back, the guy in the right seat becomes a fourth operator that can really interface with the systems, he can uh, communicate with the folks in the back, he can talk on the radio to certain uh, entities outside the aircraft, and he really becomes uh, a tactical member of the crew. That wasn't always the case uh, growing up. Uh, we just didn't, we had limited capability to, to integrate with the, with the back end. That has changed, and that is significant. That, it, that to, to be able to handle the wealth of information coming into the aircraft uh, the E2D is the right platform to move into a place where the guy in the right seat can become a, a fourth operator, uh, which greatly enhances our capability. Yeah. So in the future, we also have MQ-25. So as ACC logwing grows, think about this. We're going, you know, E2C's squadrons have four aircraft in them, and E2D squadron has five to be able to do two E2s out there at the same time. But also, in the future, we will have MQ-25, potentially five MQ-25s as a debt uh, under the squadron, under the E-2 squadron uh, that's on deployment. So that CO will own five E-2Ds 
and five MQ-25 aircraft uh, that will go out uh, and uh, uh, and do great things, potentially kinetic in the future. But as the MQ-25 as it is now will be a will be a tanker. So a lot of growth, a lot. It's an exciting time to be a part of our community uh, with these three significant transitions, uh, as well as looking to the future to bring uh, MQ-25 on board uh, under our uh, under our purview. Yeah, you talk about the improvements in the front cockpit that really make that co-pilot position now a fourth operator. That's really a force multiplier. And having flown in the E2 recently, I got to see that firsthand. The, essentially, all the displays and information from the back can be called up now into the front seat. And it really gives fantastic situational awareness uh, and an ability to have a, a much more uh, involved front seat in the crew. That is, quite frankly, the, the same path that we've gone down with the E18G. So I grew up as an EA6B pilot, and the front seat was somewhat limited. Uh, we controlled weapons, we controlled communications, but the back seat was all of the electronic warfare, electronic attack systems. Now, in a two-seat uh, front-to-back, uh, the front seat is every bit as capable in the back seat. So I think that that's a theme as we go to automation and sharing of data and information about the cockpit. You know, when you talk about the MQ-25, I mean, that is, you know, the air wing of the future is just that. And E2D, disc three, air refueling, uh, a huge, huge piece of that. Uh, MQ-25, even more so. Now starting off as a refueling platform, but also having an ISR capability. And then currently, uh, inside your portfolio is the C2 community, but the C2 community is in the process of transitioning to the CMB22. So lots of change, uh, an incredibly exciting time uh, for you and for your community. And I want to thank you very much for your time uh, today. That's Captain Michael France, uh, call sign Fancy. He's a Commodore of ACC Logwing, uh, located out in Point Magoo, California. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today, Fancy. Uh, thank you very much. Oscar, out.